live from London, this is The Globalist. I'm Tom Edwards. Coming up today... The moment for negotiations will come because every war ends with diplomacy. But my job now is to make sure that Ukraine approaches this moment in the strongest position possible. Is there a peaceful end to Russia's war? And what does the future of Ukraine look like? We'll sit down with Foreign Minister Dmitry Kuleba in Kiev to find out. Then we turn to the United States to reflect on the legacy left by former Los Angeles Mayor Eric Garcetti and look ahead to new Mayor Karen Bass. Plus why Panda diplomacy continues to be a soft power favourite and we'll make time to pay a visit to the ballet. It's so iconic and every year when we come back to this ballet it gives me so much happy spirit. That's all ahead on The Globalist, live from London. We start today's programme in Kiev as blackouts continue and the threat of renewed air raids by Russian drones lingers. But while Ukraine's tough winter continues, officials are already working on plans for what their country might look like after victory. One such person is Dmitry Kuleba, the country's Minister of Foreign Affairs and one of the youngest senior diplomats in Ukraine's history. For him, there's no doubt that the future lies within NATO and the European Union. Monocle's Carlotta Rivello travelled to Kiev to speak with Mr Kuleva. She started by asking him if he can see a diplomatic solution to end the war. My job as a diplomat now is to make sure that the coalition of countries supporting Ukraine is getting larger and becoming more solid, more consolidated. Second, to bring as much of what our army needs as we can from the entire world into the country as soon and do it as soon as possible. And third is to mobilize as many financial resources as possible to ensure recovery of post-war recovery of Ukraine. When you are a wartime foreign minister, this is what you, you are focused on. The moment for negotiations will come because every war ends with diplomacy. But my job now is to make sure that Ukraine approaches this moment in the strongest position possible and Russia in the weakest position possible. And then if we have to sit down at the table and speak with them, we will do that. But they won't be able to speak the language of ultimatums as they are doing now. I'm ready to sit down with them. I will never shake their hands, but I'm ready to sit down and talk with them if it is in the best interests of Ukraine and the people of Ukraine. But as I said, we will come to the table in the strongest position possible and we will restore territorial independence of our country. Of course, when you were in uh, New York at the United Nations General Assembly, representatives of the Russian government were there. What is it like for you, even on a personal level, what does it feel like to be in the same room with them? Um, Listen... uh... As I told you, you cannot allow emotions to, to overwhelm you. But if you ask me about the basic feeling that I have towards them, is a disgust. It's not hate. They're miserable people trying to advocate through diplomacy excuses for the atrocities and crimes they have committed. I think they drink a lot of vodka before going to sleep just to suppress their own disgust to themselves, that they feel towards themselves. And if they don't uh, do that, if they feel absolutely fine with what is happening and they are 
honest uh, Putin loyalists, then, you know, they are pure evil. And pure evil has to fail. One of your jobs before was, of course, you were responsible for European relations. And I'm curious, of course, in the meantime, the pathway to EU accession has been opened. There's talks about NATO. I'm curious, where do you see the future of Ukraine? Is it as a EU member, a NATO member, a neutral country? Where do you see the pathway for the country? Yeah, we, we will be full members of both EU and NATO. We will be an integral and indispensable part of the West as a notion. The West is not a geographical notion, it's a kind of a political notion, right? If you share the same principles and values, you belong to the West irrespective of your geography, or you are somehow associated with the West in that, in that context. So yeah, Ukraine will be a Western country with strong ties to the global South, one of the guarantors of the global food security, member of EU and NATO with a very strong army. As an outcome of this war, I think that uh, Ukraine will be the second most important military force in NATO after the United States, because the experience that we are getting, the stamina and the military power we are gaining now will be absolutely exceptional. So the security of the Euro-Atlantic area will, to a large extent, depend on Ukraine. And Ukraine will not be just on the periphery of its eastern flank. It will be a crucial pillar of the security of the entire Europe. So fast forward, let's say, 10, 15 years, you see Ukraine as being the stabilizing force in terms of security for Europe. Yes, that's a very good point. P way to put it. We will be a stabilizing force in terms of military secu hard security, but also soft security when it comes to food security, for example. But I have a habit, I never specify any deadlines. So I can neither confirm nor reject the reference to 10 or 15 years. But in principle, I agree with the outcome that you have just identified. You agree with the outcome, the timeline uh, is just it's my own words then. Yes. Um, well, I wanted to ask you as well about you are one of the youngest senior members in government and diplomats in Ukraine. Does that change the way you approach your job? Do you feel that that plays a role in how, in your worldview, how you relate to your counterparts? Two weeks ago, a colleague of mine in the government said, Dmitro, you changed your haircut and you changed your glasses. You look much younger now. And I had to respond to him that uh, finally I reached the age when you have to do something with yourself and you have to change something in yourself to look younger. <laughs> because all the years before that, one of the frequent words I was hearing towards myself was, he's too young for this job. Whether I was a first secretary or ambassador at large or ambassador to the Council of Europe, and some criticized me for being too young when I was appointed as foreign minister, but this was the choice that President Zelensky made, and I'm deeply grateful to him. He entrusted this system to me. But speaking more broadly, I don't think it's... I, I, th I, I, I really have a feeling that the time has chosen us. President Zelensky, other people in his team, you know, we have to do it. There is a certain mission that we have to complete. 
it's a big responsibility that drives me forward. And and I, I don't know how much time it will take, really, but I have a very, very strong conviction that we will deliver for our country and for Europe in a broader sense. Ukraine's Foreign Minister Dmitry Kuleba there in conversation with Monocle's own Carlotta Ribello in Kiev. And you can read the full interview in the December-January issue of Monocle magazine. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. Next up on The Globalist, we're off to the United States. This month saw the inauguration of Karen Bass as the new mayor of Los Angeles, the city's first female mayor and only the second black person to ever hold the office. And while former mayor Eric Garcetti's departure had been long announced, he's taking a post as US ambassador to India, what legacy is he leaving behind for Angelinos? And what will be Bass's priorities for her first term? Earlier, Monocle's Carlotta Ribello was joined by Monocle's US editor, Chris Lord, who reported on this mayoral election for us earlier this year and is, of course, based in Los Angeles. Carlotta began by asking Chris about the legacy that former Mayor Garcetti is leaving behind. Let's take a listen. Certainly in the last year, what you've seen is since Garcetti has announced that this mayoral race was going to happen and he was leaving... In a way, lots of his public presence has really been things like opening bridges and sort of public facing stuff. The kinds of difficulties that Los Angeles faces right now are so big and people feel that very strongly. And also, I think they feel as well that for a certain point, Eric Garcetti sort of lost the thread of what he was trying to do there. You know, homelessness got so bad and remains such a pronounced problem, a crisis actually in Los Angeles. Now, we'll come to the new mayor in a moment. And I think, you know, that mayoral race was really fought on trying to bring that problem back to some kind of control. But Garcetti, you know, I mean, if you just look at what happened during COVID, you know, the city really struggled through that period, you know, on a very urban civic level, you know, sidewalks became encampments in many places also major parts of the city downtown los angeles really became for a lot of people a no-go zone now some of this stuff truthfully in all fairness to garcetti some of that stuff is starting to come back and it is starting to get a bit of a handle on it but i think there's a feeling that because the hand went off the tiller for so long that actually bringing that back is such a monumental task. So, to your point, the legacy of him, I think, really is he set the stage now for actually that mayoral race that's just concluded was so much more charged, I think, than mayoral races usually are because there is such a profound sense of crisis on an urban level in Los Angeles. Well, let's uh, look ahead and and towards a new mayor. Throughout the campaign, which you were describing was quite an intense one, what was your assessment of how her leadership for the city might look like? And what do we know are some of the top priorities on, on the list? Karen Bass, I think, is a very interesting character. I've actually been in touch with her previously when she her congressional role is as the head of the Black Congressional Caucus. So she's very involved in Washington. She knows Washington, and Washington knows her. And I think that's going to be very interesting. It does elevate that post, I think, quite a lot, bringing her into that position. She, in her earlier career, 
was very involved in social work in Los Angeles in a period, in a period that a lot of people actually maybe overstating it slightly, but draw a parallel with a bit where we are now, where in the 1990s, when crime was such a feature of Los Angeles life, and also not just crime, but gang warfare. Karen Bass worked quite closely as a social worker during that period with some of those neighbourhoods that were almost the in the crossfire of those gangs. And that, I think, is sets her up very well for the kind of crises that we're tackling, this crisis that we were just talking about. Her approach to homelessness, I think, is interesting. She was also quite realistic during the campaign. So her, her opponent was Rick Caruso, who's a mall developer and a billionaire, interesting man as well. He poured so much money into that campaign, it was ridiculous. I mean, you, you couldn't watch a video on YouTube without having been greeted by Rick Caruso first. And it does show that American politics, we can so often think, is, is a battle of who can bring the most money to the table. And that does actually, the fact that he did lose ultimately, shows that that's not always the case. He had a very ambitious claim of, you know, really clearing the streets of people in a very, very quick period. And I think Karen Bass was much more realistic about what can be done. She's talking about, you know, yes, she's talking about raising a sort of state of alarm or emergency, if you will, to the point where you can get extra funds to tackle the issue. I sense that she also realises in all this that there also isn't really a silver bullet because, you know, the problem you have in Los Angeles is it's not like Chicago and it's not like New York. The mayor in Los Angeles has quite limited powers. You have a city council, actually, that's much more powerful. And in fact, you know, that council just in recent months has been riven with scandals where you've had two members of the council and the Latin community there in in Los Angeles, powerful people actually in this council, making derogatory statements about other communities within the city, which was a huge unravelling of that power that's there and contained within that power. And also how it revealed, if you will, private interests of individuals and trying to hedge things against other communities and so on. That's going to be, I think, a big part of what she has to tackle now, the realisation that... Angelinos will be feeling that, hey, the people who run this place are looking after their own, and that she's going to have to sort out. And I think that's going to be a big part of this. And also getting the, the homelessness problem sorted, that getting people housed isn't just a simple matter of you build it and they will come. It's also about where people are gathering if they don't have anywhere to live, and making sure that getting that under control isn't just making the people in Santa Monica happy that it's also about other communities who do have major homelessness problems but don't get anything like the coverage because it's not on Sunset Boulevard. So that, I think, is really important, and I think she recognised that. She knows every side of Los Angeles. It was interesting to see that just on her swearing-in ceremony that she declared homelessness as a state of emergency mm. for the city, which is quite a bold statement to make immediately on you know one of your first few days as a mayor. Absolutely. And the fact as well that she's the first female mayor of Los Angeles will have some weight with citizens as well. Totally, absolutely. And having your opening speech saying there's a state of emergency is so important because to come back to the Garcetti thing, I think there was a feeling towards the end of his tenure that he became the sort of cheery face of Los Angeles. And there's nothing wrong with that. That can be a very important role that a mayor can play. You know, you show up for the ribbon ceremony, the cutting ceremonies, and you you say how great things are, and you look very Los Angeles, which he does. You know, he's a very charming individual. He's got the looks, and he's got the charisma, and so on. To then have the new mayor come in and say, we're in a state of emergency, and we're going to get it sorted, is so meaningful. And I think, I also think she's right. It is an emergency. And there is a state of emergency there right now that it has to get sorted because 
you know, cities in the next few years towards the presidential election in 2024, cities are going to be very important. And by that, what I mean is that you've got a situation where the great lag for the Democrats now is that the Republicans can so easily say, hey, look how these guys run their cities. Look at what a mess they make of the country. It's so easy for the Republicans to say that. Because you look at Portland, you look at parts of downtown New York, you look at Los Angeles, also even cities like Denver that were always regarded as having a very high quality of life. The downtown has become a place that people don't want to go. This city's question is going to be the defining thing in the next couple of years because it's also about Democrats saying we can get the house in order. And I think Karen Bass, having come from that Washington world, knows very keenly that if the Democrats want to get anywhere in the next couple of years and secure a second term for Biden, then they're going to have to get the house in order when it comes to how they run cities. And I think she knows that very clearly. That was Chris Lord, Monocle's US editor, in conversation with Monocle's Carlotta Ribello a little earlier. You're listening to The Globalist. Next up on the programme, we're talking about soft power. The practice of sending animals abroad as ambassadors is not unique to China, but panda diplomacy has become the phrase which defines the practice. And though China has cut down on human diplomacy these last few years, the pandas are very much still out there. Sihai and Jingjing arrived in Qatar just ahead of the recently wrapped up World Cup. Earlier, Monocle's Andrew Miller spoke to Dr Paul Jepson, a conservation expert and the course director of Oxford University's Master of Science programme in Nature, Society and Environmental Policy. Paul's also the co-author of Diplomats and Refugees, Panda Diplomacy, Soft, Cuddly Power and the New Trajectory in Panda Conservation. Andrew Muller began by asking Paul to explain why animals are so effective as diplomatic gifts. It goes back as long as history. So I used to work in Indonesia a lot. And there, you know, the different sultanates were giving animals way, way back. And I think there's a couple of reasons why they're so good. One is that, of course, if you give a living animal, the receiver of that gift has to keep it alive. (laughs) And if you keep an animal alive, you need a place to put it. And then it becomes a bit of a centrepiece, not only for your family, but your courts. And then in modern times for a city zoo. So actually, you're giving a legacy of your presence. But When people see an exotic animal, we always ask, like, well, where does it come from? And so you as the giver, your country or your king or whoever it might be, keeps in the mind of the recipient or the recipient's community and nation. And then, of course, it also is interesting because they almost put an obligation of the recipient towards the giver. Because if you go back again and the animal's dead, it doesn't show that you've been respected, if you see what I mean. And that relationship and that need to keep it alive creates a a lasting connection between the person who gives an animal and the person who receives it, or the countries in the more modern case. But animals have generally been used to build relationships of shared interest in animals, of trust, and a sort of symbolic of a commitment for wanting that longer-term connection based on mutual benefit, usually. Well, it is the panda that people think of, certainly in modern times, when they think of animals being used in this way. And that's where we get the phrase panda diplomacy from. Is there something about the panda itself which makes it a uniquely potent asset in this respect? Is it just the fact that they are so extraordinarily cute and weird and odd and everybody is fascinated by them? 
Well, there is all of that, as you suggest, but I think there's some special things about the panda. One is that only occurs in China. And China was, if you like, very clever or very astute, maybe, in that it very early on, when I say early on, this was about 40 or 50 years ago, it moved to assure that it had ownership of all pandas in the world. We could argue, for instance, something like the tiger or the Komodo dragon is equally extraordinary, maybe not quite as cute, but equally extraordinary. But those, if you like, they spread out of those countries quite quickly, and they were bred and owned by other countries. But that combination of cuteness and its emblematic and symbolic value of the panda, and the fact that you can only get them from China as giving it that potency. Whereas nowadays, because in some ways, zoos and animals are so international, anybody could give anybody a tiger if they felt the need to do so. Just going back to the cuteness of the panda, is that especially important to China in the modern context in that there's something unmenacing, reassuring about the gift of a panda? I mean, I I come from a country, Australia, which has an enormous arsenal of soft power assets in this respect. But frankly, most of our native fauna will take your face off if you look at it the wrong way, whereas the panda is obviously not going to do that. No, this is a really good point. So in the research we did, we sort of asked that question, actually, and we did find out that there was a con conscious recognition, actually, of China thinking about what would be its national animal in a new era. And of course, you always associate the red dragon with China, which is quite a sort of challenging and ferocious animal. So the panda was seen as, at the time when China was coming out of its periods of isolation, as a symbol, as an animal, as an emblem, which sort of conveyed a friendly, non-aggressive persona, if you like. What are some concrete examples of China leveraging the panda for diplomatic advantage? The whole idea of panda diplomacy, it started back at the end of the Cold War and we had America and Russia at loggerheads on it. And then China coming out of its isolation and wanting to build itself as a presence on the world stage, but not wanting to align itself with either of the two big superpowers at that time. As they're coming out, they had state visits with Russia and then the US and also the UK. And as part of those state visits, they gifted pandas to them. You know, that's the origin of the notion of panda diplomacy, where this was the gift, and it was a hugely influential gift at the time. I mean, you can imagine that there hadn't been a live panda in the US since the 1930s. And when there was one, it was real high society stuff. So for the US to be given a panda, same in London, it was a sensation. People are seeing these pandas and thinking, we're feeling wonderful about having this panda. So that sort of filters over to feeling good about China. What do we know about how these decisions get made? Is the allocation of pandas part of the negotiation at trade agreements, as in agree to this pipeline and we'll throw in a couple of pandas as well? Or is it normally the thing they send afterwards as an afterthought, much as one might send, I don't know, a bunch of flowers or a gift hamper to the other party to a recently concluded deal? So what happens at the moment in the modern era of panda diplomacy, and just to stress to your listeners that it's not gift giving anymore, it's a sort of lease model in it, and it's done within the context of international conservation and endangered species conservation. That's how it's allowed, if you like, internationally. So all pandas are part of captive breeding programs. And those captive breeding programs, they happen in zoos. So what seems to happen is that a number of zoos around the world would like to have a panda exhibit. And that in some ways puts the zoos in the sort of premier league of world zoos. But if you like to ask for a panda, you first of all have to build 
relationships in these international networks of panda keeping, of which, of course, the Chinese State Forestry Department, they manage the Wulong Breeding Centre. They're very influential in it. But the panda is a national treasure. So it's classified as a state national treasure in China. That means they can only be allowed to go out of China with the approval of the Politburo. Now, of course, you have the highest level of decision-making in China, they have a pretty busy agenda. So what seems to happen is that when there is a major trade deal going on between one country and China, the zoo in the Western country, or also ASEAN countries as well, or, or Australia, that gives them an opportunity for the zoo and the state forestry department to recommend to the Politburo, as part of their bigger agenda of talking about this trade deal, to recommend that this zoo gets a panda. It's quite regulated, it goes to quite a high level, but you almost need that window of opportunity associated with a trade deal to do it. And then, of course, then, as this happens, the sort of other side of it, it's a nice seal of approval as a symbol of that trade deal because the panda comes over or it's announced that it's coming over. The politicians usually get involved in that. And it sort of symbolises long-term friendly relationship. We are at least in the Chinese mind, that, that the recipient country is going to host a living national treasure of China. <laughs> when you put it like that, that's quite significant. From what we know of past experience of panda diplomacy, what conditions does China impose upon or request from the host country? Like, how big a thing is it to prepare to host a couple of pandas? Oh, it's a big deal. So the host country, and it's actually not a host country, actually, often it's a host zoo, which is a private enterprise or can be, you know, a charity. So first of all, they will have to demonstrate that they have the technical animal husbandry capacity to host a very difficult to keep animal. That is non-trivial, having that. So it's only the more established, well-resourced zoos can do it. Then, of course, they have to have the place to keep them. I mean, you're looking at nine, 10 million US for the enclosure, the exhibit for it. And then you also have to lease it from the Chinese state. And it's roughly a million dollars a year to do that. So you, you sort of checked out that you've got the technical ability to leave it because, you know, this is good because everybody would be embarrassed if one of the China's died. It just wouldn't be great. You need to demonstrate that you've got the business plan, I suppose, to be able to maintain a panda or a pair of pandas during the period of their lease. The conservation expert, Dr. Paul Jepson there, speaking to Monocle's Andrew Muller. For more on soft power, do grab a copy of the December-January issue of Monocle magazine, which features our annual soft power survey. You're listening to The Globalist. UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. You're with The Globalist on Monocle 24. I'm Tom Edwards. Finally, on today's programme, it's that time of year when the Royal Ballet here in the UK revives its performance of Tchaikovsky's The Nutcracker. 
Monocle's Claudia Jacob took a trip to the Royal Opera House in London to watch the dancers rehearse and learn more about the festive classic. A number of listeners will have slipped on a pair of ballet shoes at some point in their childhood, but only a select few pursue the graceful form of artistic expression professionally. Widely recognised as one of the most competitive and physically demanding industries, there's an aura of wonder around those able to make it to the top. But here at the Royal Opera House in London's Covent Garden is the creme de la creme of the industry. Averaging around 135 performances every season, the iconic ballet and opera venue is home to the internationally renowned Royal Ballet Company. Founded in 1931 and made up of 100 ballet dancers, it's the largest of its kind in the UK. And it's currently the company's busiest time of year. There's a certain hush about the place. Tutus are being tailored, instruments tuned to the sound of Tchaikovsky's mellifluous score, and the magical scenery of Sweetieland is being carefully assembled. Nutcracker season is well and truly upon us. One of the most iconic ballets of all time, Tchaikovsky's two-act masterpiece accounts for around 40% of the Royal Opera House's annual ticket revenues. The narrative follows Clara's dream in which she befriends a nutcracker that comes to life and takes Clara to the land of sweets. Clara awakens and finds herself by the Christmas tree with her beloved Nutcracker. William Bracewell and Fumi Kaneko are two of the Royal Ballet Company's principal dancers and form part of this year's iteration of the Nutcracker, choreographed by Peter Wright. Bracewell, who plays the role of the Cavalier, and Kaneko, who reprises the role of the Sugar Plum Fairy, join a cast of dancers aged between 10 and 60. As part of the ballet's finale, they perform a pas de deux, a particularly beautiful duet. Here's William. We perform a surprisingly difficult pas de deux right at the end of the ballet. I've probably done it. How many times have I performed this role? At least the last eight or ten years of my life, there's, there's one thing that's a constant in my life, and it is Nutcracker at Christmas. <laughs> I feel like every year it's a challenge to come back to this Nutcracker. Mm. Because it, it has everything in this part of the... Yeah, it does, actually. It's got the beautiful, like, slow, elegant, controlled, mm. but it's got the punchy, like, throws mm-hmm. and big lifts. Mm-hmm. And it's it's not a short one. It's quite substantial. Mm. Like, the music is amazing and mm-hmm. really, like, it, it really gets you revved up, doesn't it? Yes. <laughs> First performed in 1934, the Nutcracker initially went by the French name of Casnoisette. 88 years later the perennial ballet has retained its place within society's arts and culture sphere. I think it's because it's such a festive ballet yeah. and it, it's so iconic and every year when we come back to this ballet, it gives me so much happy spirit and festive feeling. There's something about Nutcracker, it's like we have these rituals within our like calendar, don't yeah, we? Yeah. And you would not put Nutcracker at any other time no. of the year, would you? It's so popular because I think it's tapped into that, that festive feeling. For Bracewell and Kaneko, it's an honour to perform the ballet that they used to watch growing up. 
I mean, you just said you still re- you remember the Royal Ballet production from when you were a kid. Mm-hmm. So do I. I I came to see it when I was nine or ten mm-hmm. with my mum, and I remember it was、um, Miyako Yoshida and Johnny Cope, and I have、oh、this.、Gosh. Yeah, I know, and it's that's, that's the, it's the like the, it's the iconic. Yeah, right. I I remember、Same. my mum. We must, I must have seen the video before, so she thought, okay, I'm gonna try and get to watch that、oh. cast. So it's been part of my life for what, like, over 20 years. Yeah. So to be doing it now、yeah. with Fumi is it's amazing. We've danced a few things together, so、mm-hmm. I feel like our old partnership is it's really solid. I absolutely love dancing with Fumi. Part of what makes the Nutcracker an enduring memory in the dancers' childhoods is the extraordinary scenery and costumes which create the magical stagecraft of Sweetie Land. Lots of glitters. Oh, so much glitter! Sometimes I wake up the next day and there's glitter in my、yeah. bed. It's really, really beautiful, and also I feel like it's. Iconic because I've been watching videos since when I was little, and I'm actually wearing same costume as them. They do an amazing job of upkeeping the costumes as、I、well. Because yeah, so they, them, they, yeah, they they'll do alterations to them yeah, and update them and clean them, and if any need repairing, and、yeah. you can look back in the costumes、That's、and、amazing. see all of the old names. The ballet isn't just limited to ballet fanatics. It continues to attract audiences of all ages and backgrounds. I even remember I watched the Royal Ballet Natsukaka on DVD when I was kid,、oh. and then I still remember that that was amazing. And then I watched it again and again, so many times. And just everything about set, this Christmas tree goes bigger and bigger. It's And the music, the costumes, the sparkling, <laughs> everything—it's it, a magic, I think. The Royal Ballet's principal dancer Fumi Kaneko there in a report by Claudia Jacob. The Nutcracker. If you're interested, is on at London's Royal Opera House until the 14th of January. You can also watch the show on the new Royal Opera House streaming platform. And that is all for today's program. Big thanks to our producer Carlotta Ribello and our studio manager Sarah Nicol. The briefing is coming up in a few short hours, live at midday London time. We'll have the latest on all the day's top stories for you. Then do join the team a little later. This program, the Globalist, returns, of course, at the same time tomorrow. I'm Tom Edwards. Thanks for tuning in.